Welcome to Church History for Chumps. My name is Jonathan Simon. And I am Tom Duell. All right. Uh, today, we've got a really interesting topic for you guys. Um, so interesting, in fact, that I don't know a thing about it. Really? Okay, sweet. I feel like I've told you about this guy maybe in passing before. Right, right, right. Um, yeah. I'm not saying you got to know anything about it. It's just... I, I mean, I, I... Yeah. I... I know that uh, I know he was a deacon, um, and I know what his name starts with. Okay. Um, yeah. Cool. So we're talking Larry today. Yeah, we're talking Larry. No, I'm really excited. Um, this I think this will probably be a shorter episode. Okay. Uh, it's just kind of just a really bite-sized morsel from church history, but it's like a filet mignon. You know, mm. it's really rich and uh, tender and bite-sized. It's like a Michelin star restaurant. Mm. Not a lot to chew on, but you're going to love every bite. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's, that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet, so today we're going to talk about Lawrence the Deacon, Ooh. who was a very early church figure, church saint, and I always think of him as just Deacon Larry because it makes him sound so much more accessible. Yeah. And I feel like Deacon Larry sounds like someone that I would know. Mm-hmm. I you think know? I'd... I think Hold on. No, I know an elder Larry. Yeah. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I thought maybe an interesting way to start off a talk about Lawrence the Deacon would be to kind of compare and contrast really quick what deacons look like in uh, the early church versus now. So, Well, where in history are we with Larry? Okay. So let's do a little bio for Larry first. Sure. So Lawrence the Deacon was born on the 31st of, I think, December. Oh, Happy New Year. Yeah, dude. Born on the 31st of December in AD 225. Ooh, okay. In the Spanish city of Huesca. Oh, okay. Like Agua Huesca. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, man. We live too far southwest <laughs> to be pulling that off. Yeah. Yeah, Agua Fresca. And uh, for those who don't know, Agua Fresca is a delicious Southwestern Mexican drink. But if you're listening to this from like Connecticut, you're you're not going to get this hilarious joke I just made. (laughs) But anyways. So Lawrence, uh, I don't think there's a lot that's known about his early life. Um, But when he was pretty young, he encountered the future Pope Sixtus II. Hmm. Uh, And Sixtus was a famous teacher uh, out of uh, Greece. And I'm actually not sure how they first met, but at one point they were uh, traveling together from Spain, where Lawrence grew up, to Rome. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Sixtus became the Pope, in AD 257, he ordained Brother Lawrence. I feel like Lawrence is a name that just goes really well with brother, you know, Brother it's Lawrence. It's true. It's true. Not to be confused with the the famous uh, monk Brother Lawrence. Oh, okay. Maybe that's why it's just ringing 
mm-hmm. ringing true for me. Okay. Yeah. He's about a thousand years after this guy, though. Okay. Lawrence has really had some longevity as far as names go. I know. It sounds like such a normal name, you know, yeah. but it's pretty old. Sixtus, though. I don't know any Sixti. We got to bring that back. Do we? Yeah, dude. It just sounds like 60. What's wrong with that? Well, that's not my favorite number. Okay. I don't know. Right. Sixtus. What do you call... what? Ah, sorry. We're going to get hung up. (laughs) So he was ordained to the diaconate at the age of 22. And not long after that, he became the uh, archdeacon of Rome, which meant that he was the head of, I believe, seven deacons that were in charge of the diaconal duties in the city of Rome to the Roman church. Wow. Can I ask a question? Yeah, yeah. So, in the Bible, when I think of the deacons, like, you know, Stephen was, like, probably the most famous deacon in the Bible in the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. And the deacons were kind of like just the the task doers, you know. The elders were more specific to the care of each local church. And the deacons were more like, you know, the hands and feet of taking care of the vulnerable and the poor. Like, is that was that still what the role looked like here? Yes, plus more. Okay. So there's an argument that the deacons that we see in Acts are a form of like proto-deacons. Okay. Fulfilled a necessary role there in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem church, in the book of Acts. But as church history starts to unfold, we see the office of deacon kind of gain more responsibility and gravitas, I would say. Okay. Um, There's a really fast – so right around this exact same time when he would have been a deacon, we actually have like a report from Bishop Fabian of Antioch Mm -hmm. in uh, AD 251 where he's reporting on the the state of the church in Antioch. Well, if you remember, the Antioch church probably would have been a standout church in that century just because they were were the first – like evangelistic church mm. in the New Testament. I mean, they were really involved in sending out cross-cultural missions and kind yeah. of the first hub of the church outside of Jerusalem. Okay. So they would have been maybe a little bit more advanced than some of the other churches in the area. But at this time, they were not splitting off into like a lot of little house churches like we like to think of like the early church as being this really scrappy kind of yeah. unorganized. That is actually not the case at all. The huh. early church was rapidly organizing itself in a way that kept whole cities worth of Christians united, both in their Lord's Day assembly, but also mm-hmm. in um, almost like an alternative uh, government and uh, welfare system. Wow. So Fabian writes in 251, in Antioch they had 46 presbyters. So these would have been like your elders and your pastors okay. at the church in Antioch. They had seven deacons, okay. seven subdeacons, mm. 42 acolytes, 52 exorcists. Yeah, what's so, an acolyte? I think an acolyte is a someone who is like training for the ministry. Oh, interesting. Okay. So like an apprentice. I think so. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, you they, keep chatting. I'm going to confirm. Had, they had readers and doorkeepers. And then he also reports, and this is why I bring it up, there was 1,500 widows and 
poor in distress people that they had on like their care list basically yeah. that they were taking care of in this church financially and supporting in all sorts of different ways so for 1500 yeah see when you say that there's like 40 some elders and like seven deacons i'm like oh okay there's probably like 45 people or there's there's like 150 people that they're servicing 1500 that's just the widows wow yeah that's crazy yeah so it was a full-time being a deacon at this time was a full-time job i'll tell you you are really killing my image of the early church as just a bunch of little house churches playing patty cake taking the lord's supper with grape juice yeah now yeah they were this is this is cra- no wonder the Romans hated them. They're not just standing out in beliefs like they're effective. Like mm-hmm. they're they're creating they're creating like systems, you know? I forget which emperor it was who wrote this, but there was a one of the earlier emperors in church history who did not like the Christians basically wrote and complained at one time the Christians just beat the Romans at their own welfare system, like yeah. hands down. Like the Christians were really, really good at caring for people in distress. Yeah. So they are, and they, and you know, this is a question I've had. Are they just taking care of like the widows amongst the church goers or are they taking care of like, like just the people in their general neighborhood or I don't know, whatever equivalent. I think it's a mixture of both. So if we take um, the situation in Acts where we first get the deacons as any sort of hint, that situation sounds like that's an in-house problem where they have uh, Christians of different cultural backgrounds and they're having a hard time figuring out how to distribute funds to these Greek widows and these Jewish widows. Yeah. Um, So... I would say it's probably mostly in-house, people Mm -hmm. who are under the care of the church. But then, of course, you know, they're ministering to the poor and needy as they extend the gospel to them. Wow. That is is really incredible. Yeah, I mean, uh, (laughs) there there is this, like, you're you're totally right in saying, like, there's this image we have of the the young church where it's kind of disorganized. Everyone's just, like, hanging out, you know. And you're right. Like they were, yeah, there, there's like a clear citywide like network. Like this is an extended community of leaders and sub leaders who are in community with each other. And like, they're not just taking care of the poor as beautiful as that is. They're also probably preserving doctrine, right? Mm. Oh, yeah. Like these are, these dudes are having a lot of kind of debate about just shaping the theology of the church too. So these dudes are wearing a lot of hats and it seems like they're not doing a shabby job. Yeah. And a deacon at this time, I mean, their role was so much more than I think in a lot of kind of broader evangelical context we look to deacons as like the guy who knows how to fix acs you know so he mm-hmm. can go you know fix up the the old lady's ac when she's in distress and kind of the handyman type but at this time deacons were i mean that at, at its core the deacon comes from the greek word diakonos which just means servant so i mean this is someone who's good at serving and creating a, a a culture in the church that allows those who are teaching to be able to devote themselves to that work. Yeah. But deacons would be tasked with 
Uh, if someone had been excommunicated from the church, that didn't mean that they were not associated with by the church. It mm-hmm. just meant that the church was saying, hey, we don't we don't think that you're a Christian. Like your life and practice is not matching up with your confession right now. Yeah. And so the deacons would be sent out to go find these people and keep tabs on them and uh, encourage them to come to repentance and yeah. to re-engage in their life with Christ. See, that's amazing because I, I mean, I think of the the times when Paul in those epistles, he kind of has his little like, oh, tell so-and-so I said hello. And, you know, he's kind of giving that report. You know, people have criticized Paul when he speaks about those he's no longer in fellowship with because they've left the faith. And he, they're like, oh, well, this kind of, you know, um, kind of encourages this like oh when someone leaves the faith you just like cut them off and you know throw them into the fire but what you're saying is like yeah maybe in terms of like bringing them into Christian fellowship involving the taking of sacraments and the participating in Christian activities that there was a separation there yeah. but in terms of still seeking their well-being nudging them towards repentance and returning to Jesus like they were still doing that this wasn't this wasn't a cancellation oh absolutely yeah, yeah. yep so to kind of get to where Lawrence comes in so he's he's the head deacon in Rome the wow. church in Rome at this point is a pretty kind of like Antioch pretty big um, establishment there's a lot of work going on there if we take Antioch as any clue I'm imagining we probably had you know multiple thousand Christians in Rome at this time and uh, the emperor at the time his name was Valerian and Valerian mm. hated Christians yeah he was a very anti-christian emperor and there was this sense in the in the church in Rome at this time that they, they knew that a wave of persecution was coming. Mm-hmm. And so Lawrence was actually instrumental in helping the church realize that their property was going to be confiscated soon anyway mm. um, by the Roman authorities. So a lot of the Christians in Rome prior to the wave of persecution with Valerian, just sold all their stuff and turned it over to the church um, for the care of widows, orphans, the poor, and distress. Yeah. Because they were like, we're going to lose this stuff anyway. We may as well like hide it, essentially, from the Romans mm-hmm. um, and turn it over to the care of the poor. Valerian knew this had happened, and he was actually off fighting the Persians, and uh, spoiler alert for Valerian, he ends up being defeated by the Persians and he goes into captivity for the rest of his life and becomes a footstool for a Persian king, like a human live footstool for getting on his horse. Major L. Major L, yeah. Yeah, that guy, uh, his... Yeah, he he got his he got his uh, his comeuppance there. I'm sure there's some people who maybe rightfully think that there was some biblical prophecies being fulfilled by that. You know, making oh. your enemy your footstool, yeah, pretty, pretty big thing yeah, in the man. Bible. And they, yeah. Do you think he had like shifts where <laughs> he's like, I'm a footstool from like you know, six p.m. to ten p.m. It'd be hard to explain to your date. You're yeah. Like, hey, I got yeah. <laughs> I'm busy being a footstool. Yeah, what are those knee pads for? (laughs) (laughs) So Valerian, he's off fighting the Persians, and I don't know if he's just like ticked off thinking that the whole reason he's having to fight this battle is because of the Christians, or I think this is more likely, he knew that the Christians had these war coffers, basically, Mm -hmm. and he wanted them. And so he's 
out in the battlefield and he's writing these edicts that he's sending back to Rome and he's like hey uh, I want you to start imprisoning uh, and persecuting the Christians so in 257 he sends out a command that the Christian clergy in Rome need to perform sacrifices to the Roman pantheon or they would be banished and then in 258 AD the following year, he just starts ordering the execution of Christian leaders, not only in Rome, but all over the empire. Mm. Um, it also, at that time, uh, if you were a Christian senator, um, you had to basically swear fealty and worship the Roman the right. Roman gods, or you would lose everything, and if you refused, they were just going to kill you. You know, it seemed like an interesting thing to have in to hold office as a Christian during this time because it seems like because you know we talked about uh, Polycarp a while back he was the Bishop of Smyrna it seems like it, it was a double-edged sword to have a significant title in this point of church history because while it brought you the honor and responsibility of serving the people it also meant you had a target on your back if persecution came yep and him being the lead deacon in rome definitely put a target on his back i'd imagine yep yeah yeah in fact uh these guys that were in really high positions in the church in rome were really easy to find. And so, um, of course, they didn't start making sacrifices to the Caesar and to the Roman gods. And so, on the 6th of August, um, 258, after that second edict came out, um, they go find Pope Sixtus II. Oh, man. And uh, he's actually in the process of, um, uh, I think it was in a Eucharistic a service that they grab him and they kill him. Uh, the next day, they get another saint named uh, Romanus Ostiarius, and uh, they kill that dude. And they actually grabbed Lawrence on the 6th of August as well. Hmm. But they didn't kill him right away mm-hmm. because they knew that he was in charge of the church's treasure. All of that money that they were holding, that they were using to benefit the widows and the orphans and the poor. Yeah. So they bring Lawrence before the magistrate, the judge, and they're like, listen, Lawrence, we know that you have all the money. And so we're going to cut you a deal. We've already killed, you know, all the other uh, bishops, all the other elders, all the other deacons. But we're going to let you live if you bring us the church's treasure. And so he thinks about it for a second and he says, okay, I'll do that. Yeah. So he asks for three days to get it all together. And the magistrate's like, oh, yeah, that that sounds good. You mm-hmm. know, they think they're going to get a pretty good haul here. So what he does, he leaves the he leaves the court. He goes out. First thing he does is he gets rid of all that money straight away to make sure it never is going to get into the Romans hands. Mm. And then he spends the next three days going around Rome, finding all of the people that he had been actively ministering to along with the six other deacons in Rome. So he's going and he's getting the widows. He's getting the orphans. He's getting the children who had been thrown out and cast out by their families as infants that the church had taken in and were caring for. He's getting the people who were riddled with disease that they had been providing health care for and the, the homeless and all of these people, he gets them together until he's got this little mini army of just ragtag poor people. Hmm. 
So on the day when he's supposed to bring the the treasure to the church, uh, he shows back up uh, in front of the magistrate, and he has all these people with him. And the magistrate's like, "What are you doing? Where's the where's the treasure?" And he says to the magistrate, "He says, here are the treasures of the church. You see, the church is truly rich, far richer than your emperor." Mm, which obviously enrages the magistrate and uh, he was sentenced and imprisoned and uh, in between his imprisonment uh, and his execution he baptizes a few fellow prisoners you know Mm. just a little last little project before you go out (laughs) you know and uh, then they martyred him on uh, the gridiron which if you imagine like imagine if you had like a like a metal bed frame you know like springs on it okay and then you just heated it up super hot over a fire and then just tied someone to it oh that's what they did to him so they just basically cooked him like a pancake on that gridiron yeah and he as he was uh being burnt alive on that he looks up at the guys that are executing him and he says hey i'm well done on this side you can turn me over now oh that's hysterical (laughs) yeah dude that's so funny i'm curious about that man it's good i don't know they uh that's really good of course people take issue with it just like with polycarp and some of the stuff he said but there's too many cases of that in church history yeah. of people just saying the most ice cold lines right as they're being killed for me to it doesn't bother me at all i'm like yeah i bet you he said that and honestly bro if i had to get like i don't know like panini pressed to death like these dudes and i'm just like wallowing and like yelling my head off and then thomas writes a book the martyrdom of john simon where he's like <laughs> where i have this like hot bar that i say instead of yelling I'd be like <laughs> sick <laughs> like I'd be up there like yeah I said that alright and they're like John you can't lie up here like John just like, screaming <laughs> the whole time and then I'm writing it down and I'm yeah. just like and then he said is that all you got yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. man, I couldn't think of a really good line to say while being panini pressed to death, but I don't know. <laughs> I feel like no matter what, whether it's the martyr that's saying it or the people recording the story, the banner headline is, for Christians, death is almost a joke. Yes. It, it just loses all of its weight and power in a way where it's just like, whatever. Like, You know what would be really funny, though, is if someone was like really anticipating martyrdom for this moment and then they spit a bar that was just not that impressive where like i'm getting panini pressed and like in the middle of it i'm just like what am i a sandwich and the romans are and even the christians in the crowd (laughs) i'm rubber and you're glue And the Christians are like, oh, we're not going to write that down. <laughs> we're not going to write that down. Thomas, you want to, you were going to revise that? Okay. I feel yeah. like this is true to, to this guy's character though, because now we don't really do the whole patron saint thing in our part of the church, mm-hmm. but the Catholics, uh, Lawrence is the patron saint of, get this, bakers. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and comedians. <laughs> comedians. That's that's good. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I don't know who's assigning these patronages, but sometimes it just feels kind of cruel. Like now this guy's got to get a bunch of prayers from hey, cooks who if, are like, "God, if, please don't let me burn this bread." If he actually <laughs> If he actually said that, 
then the guy was objectively a funny person, you know? Right, and I feel like it's, it's like, I know people like that today where it's like, there's no better way that we could honor them than by just keeping the keeping the laughs going. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's super fair. Either way, uh, the move that he pulls with the magistrate is obviously just super ice cold, mm-hmm. good at performing under pressure. I mean, this seems to be the type of person that they were looking for to serve as a deacon in the early church was someone who really put others' interests above their own uh, to the point that they'd be able to contrive of a, almost a joke to be played on the, yeah. the authorities like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, yeah, that is I mean, I, I love the line, but I, I and I love even like the the trickery that he that he pulled. But like to the end, he was like this wasn't like a he wasn't dunking on them. Like his goal wasn't to dunk on them. His goal was to was to serve as a deacon in the church of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Like even to the end, he was trying to give away as much of the treasure as possible. And then he got rid of what he couldn't. So the Romans couldn't benefit from it. Like he was, he baptized two dudes in, in prison. Like his heart was like this, this was not like him owning the Romans. I mean, it was, but more so he owned them by just being the, the beautiful servant of Christ that he was. And I think that's, what's so cool about this story. Yeah. Very subversive. Mm hmm. Yeah. Through weakness. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Shout out to, shout out to Larry, man. Yep. That's uh that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> I just read something that said whenever he's portrayed in, as an icon, usually holding a gridiron. And it's like, come on, man. <laughs> like I think it's I think it's dope. That is cool. That is really cool. I really hope that stories like this kind of maybe rekindle in no pun intended, right? Oh. Yeah. I really hope that it makes people think again about what a deacon is, to be honest. Mm, I mean, I I uncovered this stuff as I was preparing to teach my church about deacons, and I really was trying to reframe that office as not this just, okay, I mean, we got to have somebody stack the chairs kind of thing, Mm -hmm. and more of a bona fide, uh, legitimate... um, office in the church that bears a lot of responsibility and uh, can make an enormous impact. Yeah. And I, and I think that the structure of the church in Rome at this time uh, really benefited them because they had so many eyes and ears in their city that they could serve the issues of the poor. I think that much better. And I do think that, you know, in, in, we're, we're here in Tucson. We're one of a few hundred churches in a relatively unchurched city. But, like, imagine if we had the type of connection and network of, like, churches that were just, like, firmly committed to serving Christ and serving the people of Tucson alongside each other. Like, it just feels like any time a church wants to do something for the community, they're either tasked with reinventing a wheel that's been in existence for a long time, or they're just looking into this void of like all these things that either already exist or don't exist. Like, like to me, this is deacons being outside the box. And I think you're right. I hate the idea of deacons being the chair stackers, the AC fixers, the people who buy the bottles of water. Like, I mean, those are all good things. No, yeah, not those to discount that. Those are all good that. things, yeah. yeah. But 
to have such a minimized view of what the diaconate can look like because really like the the deacon is an office of the church and the church is the instrument of god to reflect his character to the community mm. like that if if we see that as true then the deacon should not just be stacking chairs yep. and i don't think that's a rebuke to any deacon who's faithfully serving i really think that's an encouragement at for I think even for the two of us as elders of two different churches to like be willing to think outside the box of what of how we can empower and encourage our deacons um, because yeah that's it's definitely swirling in my head right now amen yeah sweet well thanks for tuning in yeah thank you guys uh, thanks for joining us as we chatted about our uh, our friend big man Larry um, God bless you guys we will talk to you again very very soon later bye.